Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. To the house of pot. Da, da, da. I'm Kavi. I'm Lizzie. Uh, and we're a medical type podcast. We talk about medical type things, sometimes not. Um, how are you, buddy? What's going on? It's good to hear you back here. It's two episodes we had without you. Two, two. Crazy. Hey, That's a I long didn't even know there time. were two. <laughs> yeah, we, we end up doing one long uh, day and then we split into two episodes. But okay. uh, thank, thank you for Dr. Steven Sample um, at Superman Sings for joining us uh, when he wasn't busy doing 11th Hour with Brian Williams. Appreciate that. Oh, snap. Um, Look but, at that but, guy. But it's good to have you back. It's good to have you back. How have you been? I'm good. I'm good. I did end up going to New York recently. So yeah. that was one oh. reason why I missed, I think, some of the episodes. But uh, it was great. I felt, you know, safe and we ate in bubbles and stuff and it was cool. And, um, you know, it was freezing, but whatever. Would you literally mean bubbles, like outdoor, like tent bubbles, you yeah, mean? Yeah. I don't know if you look at the news or all, like these posts of people eating in like tents, essentially. And we did. We went out to eat in like literally a plastic tent. And, you know, it, the waiter still comes in, but like, I, and we're sitting outside. So it's like, we're already sitting outside and we're all vaccinated. So like, I don't, I don't really get it, but it's, I guess for people who are you know, I think there's probably a heater in there. You know, right. it's freezing in New York well, in the winter. Well, so let me ask you, though, do you think that's actually a better approach? Do you think actually making it a bubble, though, actually traps in the last guests that were there, their air, oh, oh. And, and, and may transmit more than if it were just to be open with a heating lamp? Like this, because you see like probably. these pictures. <laughs> I, you know, you see these pictures of these outdoor dining areas, quote unquote, outdoor dining areas, but they're basically enclosed areas on the sidewalk, you know, yeah. where there's really no opening and right. which defeats the purpose totally. I mean, is it better to have it open, but with lots of heat? I think that, yes, I think open with lots of heat is probably better. I think these tents, you can like kind of drape open the, a lot of the doors and like quote unquote windows and stuff. So I do think there's a lot of ventilation, but you know, it's just trying to be 
uh, creative in a terrible, terrible circumstance. And if you're with your family, you don't feel it. I don't think that much of your droplets or whatever linger that long in aerosolized form like you, yeah. that you'll inhale it. And it's that much of a danger. I think it's just a cute little quirk, but yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it was all fun and New York felt normal, you know, enough. I, it's not like I'm going out to bars and stuff and like yeah. clubs and, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, so it was fun. Mm-hmm. 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 I was Being talking to someone recently. <laughs> what are you doing your club? That was music? my, that was my techno song. That was my one techno mm-hmm. song I have in my repertoire. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was good. Um, I was, I was talking to someone the other day about just like the future of healthcare and, you know, there's so much in the news. I don't know if you're in tune with it, um, with Amazon and the unionization in Alabama, um, and it's fascinating, like if you hear about or, or read anything about it, even like a blurb about it, about, you know, how workers want to unionize in Alabama and Amazon does not yeah. want its workers to unionize anywhere, specifically sure. right now in Alabama. Right. And, um, and I was reading about Amazon and how they're going to get into like the healthcare industry and they like Apple and, you know, all these other kind of um, private companies are going to get into it. And I was thinking like, that's such a don't don't you think comic that that's such a terrible statement of healthcare in the world and specifically obviously America that it's probably just so lucrative and that there's money to be had that these private companies want to get into it or do you think that it's like altruistic that they think they can do it better no. than American healthcare well, I think it's both I think they think they can do it better and make money off it for that purpose right. um or at least they think they can do it in a more profitable way. I mean, I don't know if that means better for the patient, but that's what they see as better. Right. I think these, a lot of these companies see it as, oh, we could be making a lot more money off of this. They right. see how inefficient medicine is and that they're right about that, I think. But yeah. I don't think they're doing this in any altruistic way. I, right. I think that's pretty clear. But don't you think it's ominous that like there probably isn't that much altruism in it and that there's so much profit to be had, that there's like this yeah. door that these guys want to walk through. Cause like, ew, right. There's a reason they didn't become doctors. Right. There's a, they, you know, there's, I mean, not that we're perfect, not that doctors are, you know, uh, totally altruistic themselves. I mean, we still do things based on, you know, salary and income, but that's part of the calling of medicine. That's part of why we do it. And there's a reason these people did not become doctors in the first place because they had sort of other drives and goals. And I'm not saying all business people are bad. They're not, certainly not. But I mean, uh, I have a hard time. I have a hard time believing like Amazon um, wants to do this because they feel they can provide healthcare better. I feel like they can provide it in an efficient way that can make them a great sum of money. <laughs> right, right, right. I don't think business people are better than doctors, although maybe lawyers. What What do you think about that? I think we'll talk about that with our next guest, one of our two next guests. So we're going to have on a Dr. Sarah Diekman. She is a doctor and a lawyer. And Dr. Argo Gonzalez, who's been on the show before, we're going to talk to them about gender equity. We'll talk a little bit about uh, the law and and uh, maybe a little bit about who is worse, doctors or lawyers. Um, before we do that, let's see. Let's thank Nadim for helping us get these episodes out there. Thank you again to Dr. Stephen Sample for uh, pinch hitting when uh, Lizzie was out. Um, anyone else you want to thank, Lizzie? No. Very good. Follow us on iTunes and follow us at Twitter at the House of Podcasts.
Okay, coming back, we have Dr. Argavon Salas. She's been on the show before. She is a bariatric surgeon, and she is the special advisor for DEI programs at the Stanford University Department of Medicine. We're going to ask her what DEI programs are in a second. But we also are joined by Dr. Sarah Diekman, MD, JD, MS, GOD, who is an occupational and environmental medicine resident physician at John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Argavan, tell us right away for everyone to hear what DEI program is at Stanford or in your capacity. Yeah, DEI stands for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, sometimes people will say nowadays JEDI, justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. <laughs> um, but this current position, the title is DEI. Got it. And, and Dr. Diekman, what is an environmental specialist in medicine? Is that, is that the program? Is that what it's called? Did I get that name? Yes. Occupational so, and environmental, right? Exactly right. But don't feel bad because um, <laughs> very rarely have people been exposed to it or heard of the specialty, myself included. Um, <laughs> but once I understood what it was, I, I thought that's where my home is. Um, so we deal both with occupational injuries uh, so uh, workers comp, clearing people for work, and then environmental um, toxicology, uh, you know, molds, and all the things that make us sick from our environment. Hmm. Well, um, we want to have you both on to talk about gender equity in the workplace, in medicine, and you know, beyond medicine, um, because it seems to be a topic that uh, never is going to go away. It seems like it's constantly a new stories coming up that we need to address. And I'm not sure how much progress we're making. So maybe you guys can help us with that. But before we do that, um, can you tell us, Dr. Diekman, how it came to be that you are an MD and a JD? What, where did that journey start? Oh, honestly, that journey started in, well, I was in, medicine, medical school, and really had no intentions to do anything with the law. And I had experience on top of experience that made me very curious about the laws of our country and what is and isn't legal. Um, the way I saw patients treated, the way I saw my classmates treated. And then ultimately, I <laughs> was in a very serious dispute with my employer, um, my first residency, and that did not end well. And I went to law school. <laughs> well, you know what's great about it? It's in its way, even though you, it's like you going to law school and being a lawyer, it's almost like the most pre-med thing you can do, which is like, I am not only going to learn how to fix this, I'm going to go to be the lawyer that, that <laughs> takes this own this case up. Like that's as hardcore as you can get, you know? Can you elaborate like a little bit of what the controversy was that made you so inspired to go to law school? Like we had on our show, our um, a physician in chief at San Francisco at Kaiser Permanente, TP, TPMG physician, Maria Ansari, who talked about when she was a fellow, there was salary discrepancy. The man, mm -hmm. her, her level was making, you know, $10,000 more than she was. And she asked why. And they said, because he's the breadwinner at home. And this is like 15, <laughs> maybe 20 years ago at most, you know, he is the earner. And she's like, well, I can't, even think about having kids because I'm so grossly underpaid and I would be the earner, you know? So that to me was ripe for 
you know, for actually getting lawyers involved. There was some legal dispute, but in the end, her program director just resolved the issue and said, you know what, you're right. So she fought for that on behalf of her women peers. So that- And those fellowships, they're not even negotiated contracts. Those are contracts of adhesion, at at least they are now. So it's it's really a non-negotiable salary. So they're just, uh, you know, it's um, really kind of controversial because the way that we get contracted into residencies and fellowship doesn't exist other places in our legal system. It's a one-way contract, which is usually not enforceable the way that we have contract law in this country. Yes. But they just carve out this exception for residencies and fellowships. And you put in, I didn't know I had, that's actually the first time I've heard about an equal pay issue. Um, because you're not actually really even accepting it. You're given your contract right. and you're just told. Right. Because that's where well, you match to. Mm-hmm. One thing I'll add there is that uh, that's absolutely correct, Sarah, that most trainees are given these like non-negotiable um, uh, contracts. But in fellowship, especially if it's not an ACGME accredited fellowship, um, there can be uh, a lot of variability. So what was the fine, was that, so what was the, the case, if you, if you can share with us, that made you go that that prompted your going to law school i'll keep it a little bit vague but i filed an eeoc complaint while i was an employee i don't know what eeoc is oh okay so i you need to get to go way back like we i yeah, know this is a, right <laughs> but but you know what i was googling all these things when i was a resident like trying to learn to be my own attorney like how do you actually file a complaint what happens like you can read about these laws the americans with disabilities act mm-hmm. laws um title nine title seven these are the things that say that you can't be harassed at work because of your gender um so the administrative body that actually um, brings those laws to life, if you will, is the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Okay. So if you want to file, for the most part, a complaint, so you can go get a lawyer and they can help you file this stuff, right? But sometimes like people um, can't afford a lawyer, can't get someone to help them, and at first I couldn't either. So uh, you can go to the EEOC and direct file a complaint. So before you can sue an employer for ADA, equal rights, a lot of different things, you actually have to get a right to sue letter from the EEOC. Some cases, the Department of Justice will actually take them from the EEOC and uh, litigate them themselves. But that's pretty rare. So you can't just sue your employer on most of on a lot of those federal laws directly. You have to go to the EEOC first. Yes. One other thing I wanted to add is that when you make an EEOC complaint, that launches an investigation. It's important to know that if you do that and you go to the EEOC, that will not remain confidential. Their whole okay. point is they have to then go investigate. So all these people who you're working with will soon know that you filed this complaint against them. And this is, I would say, one of the barriers that keeps people from doing the reporting. So, Absolutely. So let me, let me just take a second to sort of recap. 
you're in medical school, something happens in the situation where there's a disagreement or there is some sort of, you have a different opinion. Residency, about something. Yeah. residency sorry. And, and during residency, something happens. You decided to go to law school. Am I, that's the, that's the, the take home point is that you decided to become a lawyer and a doctor. Is that correct? That's right. So l- let me ask you something that we discussed on this show a couple of times as a quick aside, who are worse doctors or lawyers? <laughs> well, you have to be more specific. Who's douchier? No, who's who's douchier? Doctors or lawyers? I know the answer to this. I can tell you the answer. I have it already. Do you want to know? Yeah. Well, it's <laughs> doctors because at least all the lawyers I know, know they're a little douchey. You know what I mean? Like doctors don't know that they are. Lawyers are kind of like, yeah, I know what I do. Sometimes a little douchey, but doctors oh, yeah. don't oh, know. Yeah. That's what I like about lawyers. No, they, no one loves lawyer jokes more than lawyers, first right. of all. <laughs> right. And right. lawyers, they will battle it out with each other, you know, just, I mean, real uh, gladiator stuff. And then they just leave it on the field and they're fine with it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I have to say in the medical profession, People hold grudges. And I mean, I'm not saying all lawyers are saints and there's never been a grudge held, but just painting with a broad brush there. I find that, um, you know, really the ability to have vigorous debates and uh, what seems like a fight, maybe a fight, but um, it it doesn't get held on to. It's just kind of, which I think science um, would really benefit from that. I actually want to bring more debate style um presentations i Mm -hmm. saw it once in medicine about at an asco in like 2011 they were debating a psa and they had uh people present both sides of the argument which is really kind of a legal style of doing things and i loved that i think that's like vigor in science so you think uh lawyers have less like hold less of a grudge that's yeah, because they just fight it out. They're yeah. like, get it out. Yeah, and it's get done. It. <laughs> then so then they you, go have dinner. What did you what did you like better? <laughs> like uh year for year, month for month, day for day, like med school or or law school? Well, I actually really loved law school, but I think that I was recovering from some trauma of medical training where pretty much um you're taught to be silent, but also to not be silent, be, you know, just all these like impossible contradictions. And um, most of all, you're taught not to advocate for yourself at all. I remember one time in law school there, um, literally I had like a visceral reaction. My stomach was in knots because somebody asked the professor if we could have open book test. And I'm like, how, oh my gosh, she's asking him this. You're like, what she's a lunatic. She's asking for something. She's going to get, I mean, death is going to happen now. And instead, yeah. she persuaded the professor and we got open notes. And I realized how deep my trauma was from all this medical training. I mean, I really literally got sick to my stomach watching somebody ask for something for themselves. So law school was was a real undoing process for me for actually, you know, reacquiring a voice and probably acquiring a stronger one than I had um, from whenever the, you know, the, the programming started. You know, <laughs> you're, you're right. There is something about med school that makes us 
have this self-import of like, you know, because it's honorable and we like kind of take that and wrap that around us for like everything. Like I, we have this attitude of like, oh, I have to show up to work tomorrow. Even if I feel like shit um, because you're irreplaceable, you know, like I have a terribly messed up pinky that we promote, that we post on there, you know, on Twitter and Facebook and everything once a year or so, because I was like, I can't go to a doctor. I have to work tomorrow. You know, like I just, we don't take care of ourselves because we don't feel like we have the right. And it's this really well, we're, neat, we're taught, terrible way. We're taught that we don't have the right. It's not that we feel that. Um, I think, we, I think it's a culture of that. that. Yeah. Right. Nobody yeah. explicitly says right. that, but that's what we feel from one another. And it's a terrible culture, right? Nobody explicitly says don't take care of yourself. Don't take oh, care but of your body does. or your mouth. Oh, but they will. Being so, so being someone who has a disability and has to have actually asked for these things directly have been told, like, you have to choose between being a doctor and a patient. Being, if you have medical issues, it's incompatible with being in medicine. And Would then I went to law school to clarify whether or not that was actually legal to say. And was it's it? It's not. Okay. <laughs> can, you, can you share what your disability is or is that not something you're comfortable with? No, yeah, I'm absolutely comfortable. Oh, okay. um, sadly, I have a laundry list, but um, the, the, the large strokes are, uh, so dysautonomia, postural orthostatic tachycardic syndrome, which I love putting it out there because it's a really underdiagnosed uh, a disorder. And then also I have learning disorders on top of that. A little ADHD, dyslexia. Yeah. So the major reason we wanted to have you guys on is talk about gender equity um, in, in medicine, in the workplace. But let me start with medicine. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, gender bias and gender-based harassment occurs pretty much all the time. Um, and I think different people kind of realize it at different points in their career. Um, I can say for me, um, I didn't realize it until residency. Um, I had been uh, very confident in my math and science skills. I loved math and science. I did engineering as an undergrad, um, didn't really think too much of it um, because I was very comfortable and then went to medical school. And again, like felt perfectly fine, um, felt like I did well in my classes. You know, I, I didn't really to be honest, I wouldn't have even categorized myself as a feminist at that point in time, because I was just like, whatever, like, this is the world, and I live in it, and I'm doing fine, and I'm succeeding, everything's great. Um, and it wasn't until I was in residency where I felt that I noticed that men and women were treated differently um, by, by nurses, by faculty, um, you know, kind of everyone around. Um, and it was like most to me, most noticeable in the ICU, you know, a male resident could walk in the room and say, all right, we need to da, 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 like get some fluids, start antibiotics. I need an ABG, these labs, you know, whatever the things are. And, um, and they could say it with vigor and, um, then, and then it would be done. Like, maybe there was some conversation about like, should we do this antibiotic versus that? I mean, there might be some conversation about it, but like those things would be done. Um, but for myself and other women I worked with, you know, we could, if we walked in, first of all, if we walked in and said those things in that same way, we would be demanding and bitchy. So we couldn't even do that. But even if you don't do that and you just like say what the things are that you think the patient would need, um, you may or may not get engagement on it in terms of an actual conversation and the things that you actually order may or may not happen. 
Um, certainly if you just order things in a computer as a woman and then you don't communicate directly, they definitely won't happen. I mean, th those were the kinds of experiences mm -hmm, that I had mm -hmm. and, and more, you know, like I had a, a faculty member who literally said to me, a woman, um, I don't know why we train women to be surgeons because they just want to go off and have children. Um, oh, wow. so, you know, how, those types, how old was that doctor out of curiosity? Was he really he was, old or just like regular old? He was a little older. He was probably, my guess is, I don't know, late fifties or sixty or something at the time. Uh, doesn't seem that old to me anymore. I know, right? And not to me either. <laughs> That's why I say he's a little older. <laughs> yeah. um, but you know, th those are the types of attitudes that I saw in residency, and I just said not. I, I was like living in this naive bubble of meritocracy, right? That yeah. like, as long as you show up and you do a good job, you will get ahead. And all of a sudden, I realized, oh no, no, people really care about whether I'm smiling. And people, mm -hmm. I mean, literally commented on my evaluations about um, my posture on rounds, that my posture was informal. I don't know what that means, but okay. Um, and, you know, like... <laughs> I'm just imagining you lounging. Like, what does that mean? <laughs> like, you're just, like, laying down, like, on a table, like, on a gurney doing rounds. <laughs> what do you you know, to, the best of, to the best of my understanding, because, of course, I thought about that after I saw that comment. Like, what does that even mean? I, I think that this was in the ICU and this was, um, you know, they have the mayos at the end of the, so these are um, basically trays that yeah. people use to put, you know, the water for the patient or pieces of paper, whatever. They would often be at the end of the um, patient's bed and I might stand there with an elbow on the mayo as we discuss the patient. Um, I think that's what they were talking about. <laughs> I don't know, um, but apparently too informal. <laughs> Um, on rounds, you know, when I was a, a resident, a mid-level resident, I got told um, by a very well-meaning person that I should stop wearing colors um, because it would give people less to talk about. Um, maybe I should just wear black and gray for, you know, a couple of years and uh, which, let it all wash out. Which you are Persian, by the way. So that's not like insane for you just to wear all black. That's something that we could feasibly do at work yes. all day and pull it off. But yes. that, that is, I mean... It's amazing. Those are things that, you know, I don't, I'm, I didn't hear. I mean, I got plenty of other complaints, but my posture <laughs> was not one of them, you know? Um, it's, it's yeah, a bit so anyway, that's me. when, for me, that's when I, right, sorry, it was a long answer. For me, when I was a resident is when I found or noticed these discrepancies. But I think for some people, it happens when they become faculty. And for some people, it happens when they become mid-career faculty, you know, that they were kind of shepherded along and supported and sponsored and mentored until they became, um, really a threat in some ways, right? They became successful. Mm -hmm. And now all of a sudden, the people around them were like, wait, if I keep sponsoring this person, she might outdo me. And that that becomes challenging for some people to, to accept. So anyway, point is, I think it happens at different times, that realization, but the, the things that are existing in the system, the ways that we evaluate women differently from men, for example, those are happening throughout. Got you. It is, it is very interesting to me to hear that and I guess it's not too surprising, but, you know, it is surprising that it happens to me on all levels of a woman's career, um, including when she's mid-career, because you think that power dynamic might have shifted, but you bring up this really good point of that, you know, at, then you become a real threat. That's when you become a real threat. And that's when you're, you know, there's a competition and deep down in every pre-med, there's some competitive nonsense then you add gender inequity onto that. I can imagine that being pretty bad. How, how does, how does uh, gender inequity in medicine compare to gender inequity outside of medicine in, in the common workplace? 
Um, I mean, I can just say that a lot of the things that we see in medicine also happen elsewhere. So for example, if you talk about um, performance evaluations, data from the business world suggests that there are definitely some very significant differences between the feedback that women get versus the feedback that men get. And, and there's a number of different studies out there. But for example, in one study, men were more likely to get basically specific feedback on things that they could actually do differently to improve their performance. Whereas women were more likely to get feedback about, say, their tone of voice or, um, you know, their personality or things that you, you can't really change, right? Um, so more men were getting more actionable feedback that could improve their performance. And you can imagine how that might change their career trajectory. Um, or if you look at um, venture capital and how people interact with people who are um, like young entrepreneurs, the things that they say about the men and the women entrepreneurs are very, very different. Um, for example, a younger man, who maybe let's say two people, not that much experience, the man, they'll say he has so much potential and the woman, they'll say she's got no experience. Um, and there's, these are studies that are out there where people looked at data systematically. Um, and, and these are the same types of things that we see play out in yeah. medicine. Yeah. It's honestly like gun violence. Like there's just cycles of news, like with Cuomo and Harvey Weinstein, I saw mm -hmm. a headline, I think even today, it's just like, yeah. it doesn't go away. It's predictable, right? Like every two to three months, maybe six months, but really probably every two to three months, it's just like predictable and, and disgusting. So what's, uh, maybe both of you could take turns, but like your advice on how to be allies, like for institutions, whether it's residency programs or med schools or fellowship or beyond, honestly, from what you said, Sarah, like providing free legal advice might be like something that we should get behind. And obviously there's organizations like that we've been able to rely on like time's up and now they're suffering and their credibility is kind of, there's cracks in that. So I don't, if you want to speak to that, you know, this would, this would be a good time. So we can talk about, you know, routes for people to pursue and maybe routes that are not the best to pursue at this time. I mean, I wouldn't tell anyone to not try. If somebody helps you, then they help you. And, and that's first and foremost. Um, I've been, you know, talking to people for a while, trying to get more legal assistance and medicine. One of the barriers that medical, that physicians specifically experience is that no one sees them as a vulnerable population. They see them as a sophisticated, rich population, fully able to advocate for themselves. That's a good point, and, yeah. And one of the most vulnerable um, situations I've seen people get in, and I would categorize myself as having been um, at least a version of this, is that if you're having trouble in one domain, like say you suddenly have a life-altering illness and you're faltering for something, like for you're not able to flourish in the meritocracy you're just getting by if someone a true predator because there's different types of harassment right but if we're talking about like the predator type they will target people um med students residents attendings who are teetering for some reason having some other problem because they know that their reputation can't take another hit they know that they could like maybe a bad review or something could really hurt that person's career and that's a pattern i've seen happen with people over and over and over again 
So I actually think one of the things that we can really do as a community is um, if you're hearing from somebody that that a resident, somebody is having struggles, like really look for that confirmation bias and who's like are, are seeds being planted in your head to, um, you know, uh, leverage on, on this person? Like maybe are they being targeted as a victim? Because this is, it's not quite grooming, but it's like a way of making a vulnerable person more vulnerable. So then they are like dependent on a predator. And this pattern plays out a lot in medicine. And the number one way that we can fight it is actually with good peer reviews, good supervisor reviews, actually being really objective and, and helping people's skill set. And maybe that person really is teetering, but, but see if you can't help them level up because maybe they're teetering for some reason and they're being sexually harassed. And you know, what direction is that gonna go? Mentor, you know, help them, skill, give them a chance to, to skill out of it. Yep, I, I think this might be a good moment just to mention some things that the audience may not know. For example, I find that not everybody knows even what qualifies as um, sexual harassment. And I just want to touch on that very briefly, not to be boring, but um, just because it's more than people often think it is. So um, the National Academies put out a report um, a couple of years ago that's really excellent. Um, and they looked at science, engineering, and medicine, and they looked at the issue of sexual harassment. And um, they have some great graphics and great data. I encourage anyone who's interested in this topic to read the report. It's free. You can download it from their website. But there are basically three categories of um, sexual harassment. And the first, or kind of the most common one, is gender-based harassment, uh, which is defined as verbal and nonverbal behaviors that convey hostility, objectification, exclusion, or second-class status um, about members of one gender. And these are things like, like what that person said to me about women, why are we training women to be surgeons? Or when patients say things like, oh, they let women be doctors now, or you know, those types of things that indicate that women don't belong in this place. So if you think about that, that's a lot of comments. That's a lot of stuff happening all the time. Um, and the next category is unwanted sexual attention, um, which is verbal or physical unwelcome sexual advances. And that can include assault. And then the last category is sexual coercion uh, when favorable professional or educational treatment is conditioned on sexual activity. Now, if you think about those three categories, gender-based harassment is far and away the most common, then maybe unwanted sexual attention. And of course the least common uh, fortunately, is sexual coercion. But when people think about sexual harassment, they're often thinking about only the latter two categories. Right. And so right. it's easy when you see these studies and people estimate like how often people are sexually harassed, you really have to look at what definitions are they using? Because if they didn't provide the participants any definition, I have argued before, would argue again, that in medicine, we write off all the gender-based harassment as not really a thing because it happens so often, it's just normal. I mean, I wrote a, I wrote right. a whole thing for Scientific American, like gender, so I said sexual harassment is the norm in medicine. So we right. don't even think about, it doesn't even, it's not a blip on our radar, um, but those things are happening all the time. Um, and I think for trainees, one of the ways that this plays out is in the evaluations of people because it's all about power. So this is another like fundamental misunderstanding about sexual harassment is that it's about sex is not about sex. It is about power. And it's based on the foundation of inequality. If we all had equal power and equal status, 
there would be no sexual harassment because how could you get away with it, right? The only way you can get away with it is because you're preying on someone who, for whatever reason, whether it's just their gender, you might be at the same rank, but women have lower status than do men, or that person may even be at a lower uh, rank and then clearly has lower status because of that. But for whatever reason, there's a power inequality there that's being manipulated. And it's things like looking a woman up and down as you get into an elevator with her. That is the same thing. It is saying, I am in a position to judge you and your appearance and don't you dare have independent thought or whatever else you think you're about to do. Um, it's assertion of power. So I just wanted to clarify that. Well, that's what Sarah was saying also, I guess with, um, you know, when somebody shows a vulnerability or a weakness, they yep. prey upon that. So whether it's just you're the same level, man, woman, there's that discrepancy in this day and age. And, you know, if somebody's having problems at work or, you know, or problems at home or something, you know, or whatever, there's an insecurity and it's like parallel to bullying, you know, everyone like can sniff out someone that they can or want to take advantage of. And it's, it's all, it's all gross. Yeah. And when I, I just wanted to add to, when I say status, um, you know, it can be talking about like roles and official titles, but actually when you look at like studies in sociology and psychology, people afford less status to women, period can be random participants in a study, but if they're gonna negotiate with a woman, they're gonna give her less money. Uh, and I'm not talking about when they're hiring her, but if they're like, we're gonna split $2 between us and it's a bunch of coins, they give the woman less, less money than they would if the person they were negotiating with is a man. Right. So You're saying it's just I mean accepted. It's not even interpreted. It's just accepted yeah. as like yeah. doctrine, you know? Right. Well, and, and if you add to that these like true power differentials of like a trainee and a practicing person or a faculty member and their department chair or whatever, like then obviously it's magnified. Like Lizzie said, it's all gross. That's going to be <laughs> our next t-shirt uh, for the House of Pod. It's all gross. Um, <laughs> we'll, 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 close, we'll close there. Uh, this is a topic I know we're going to keep coming back to because like Lizzie mentioned, it keeps coming up in the news cycle, including in the world of medicine in some pretty uh, big cases that everyone's heard about too. So I'm sure we'll be talking more about this uh, as well. Thank you both so much, Dr. Uh, Salas and Dr. Diekman. Can you, um, starting with, with you, Dr. Salas, can you tell us where people can find you? Oh, sure. Um, I'm on Twitter at Argavon underscore Solace. I'm on uh, Instagram at Argavon Solace MD. I'm on LinkedIn. I have a couple of YouTubes. Um, those are probably all good places. Dr. Deacon? I'm glad she went first to give an example. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Justice in Med. And my Instagram page, I think is Justice in Medicine. And then on LinkedIn under my name. Excellent. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Well, because there's two of us, we feel like we, yeah, it's like, there, it feels like there's backup and yet sometimes they're not or like one of us, we, or, or we both forget to record. So that, that that's not happened. great. That's not great <laughs> that's when that happened. Great. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a physician or other qualified health care provider for your specific health care needs or concerns. The opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the opinions of our employees. Details in the podcast have been changed so that patient identification is not possible. And I'm alive and I want to stay.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.